This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Morena no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch-up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo irarangi o natangata o Manawatu. Uh, this morning, it's Friday morning, so that means we turn our attention to central government. And on the phone this morning, MP for Rangitiki, uh, we have Ian McKelvey. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning to you, Fraser, and it's been a beautiful week or two of weather, hasn't it? It has indeed. Um, I don't know, not being up with the play in the farming community, but how is the weather faring? Has it been a a good year, a good summer? Been very good until about uh, Christmas time, but uh, since the uh, rain on Boxing Day, I think it was, we've had eight mils of rain for the last... uh, month and a bit so it's starting to get dry yes um but hopefully i mean we're expecting rain this this weekend aren't we well, it looks like it but then we've been expecting rain a few times and hasn't eventuated so well fingers crossed that uh, the farming community make it through relatively unscathed uh let's have a look at what you've been up to over the past couple of weeks uh one of the the, the big sort of uh, headline earners was the uh, national party retreat uh, Christopher Luxon leading the first sort of um, shadow cabinet. He's, he's formed a, a shadow cabinet, which apparently is not a very common thing in New Zealand. No, and it's something we've talked about before uh, with respect to, because it enables people to exactly shadow effectively the ministers. And so it makes a big difference, I think, to their ability to, to counter what's going on. So if you have a, a portfolio as opposed to a to, to being a, a shadow cabinet minister, you're shadow cabinet minister, you're dealing with the issues the cabinet minister is dealing with as best you know, and so yeah, I think it's a positive move. Um, I noticed the uh, the one of your key, well, the keynote or one of your main speakers was George Osborne. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, he wouldn't have been my first pick, but uh, did he have anything useful to say? He was very interesting, and the reason he was. He was speaking to us was because David Cameron was going to speak to us and contacted COVID the night before, and so so he couldn't. Um, obviously, they zoomed in, but he couldn't. Um, he couldn't uh, attend. So uh, George was his right hand man, effectively, and so he took the reins and uh, did a very good job. I mean, actually, at the end of the day, what we were doing was was using either David Cameron or he to talk about how you rebuild a party that's been in. Uh, in uh, opposition for quite some time. And, of course, he was part of the... Um, at the time when Tony Blair was the Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain, uh, they were the opposition for some nine or 12 years. Yes. Oh, well, good Good that they're talking about that and not, and not managing budgets then. That, that's, uh, that, that, that's good to know. Um, speaking of managing budgets, though, Christopher Luxon has come out uh, and said that government spending is, is out of control and uh, things need to change. Um, I mean, that, that, is, is that not a sort of a global issue, uh, not, not restricted just to New Zealand? This is how we cope with the pandemic? Yes, I think his point is that we don't agree with some of the way the pandemic spend's been uh, managed, and I think that will become very clear to the, to the, 
the country as, as we move on because the debt's growing rapidly. Uh, we've we've uh, d- directed funding that was put aside specifically for COVID into things like fishing boats and school lunches and things like that. And you could, you could to some extent, uh, accept, um, accept the school lunches because you could say that, um, that families have come under much pressure as a result of COVID, but the fishing industry certainly could have managed their own uh, cameras on fishing boats. There was no need to spend uh, an excessive amount of money on that. So there's things that have, that have been spent from the COVID budget that we don't agree with, and then there's the waste of money, and then I think the $30 million spent on the clip-on bridge in the Auckland Harbour, which is clearly never going to go ahead, is just a typical example of, of gross wastage of, of um, taxpayers' money. And, and yet we are predicting a, a surplus uh, by 2024, which, I mean, seems to be a very healthy position compared to some other countries. Well, that's very interesting because if you look at the... I think something like a $6 billion increase in tax take. And, and that's mostly come from the government spend. So if you think about the government injecting a whole lot of wage subsidy and other money into the economy, and that goes round the circle uh, sometimes many times, then it's going to boost the tax take. But, it's a, but it's, a, it's a fraught tax take, basically, because it's really the government getting its own money back. Uh, and so whilst the economy, to some extent, is going really well, uh, if you went to Queenstown, you'd get a bit of a, a different view of the world. But um, but the economy in rural New Zealand is going very well. And you've got to say that, um, you know, we've got record prices, best dairy prices ever, certainly best lamb and beef prices I ever remember. And so so some of the prices are very good, and that's the reason for it. Um, the, Christopher Luxon has been somewhat, champ- well, not championing, but he's he's gone on record as saying uh, one way to save some money will be to increase the age for superannuation. Uh, you are obviously uh, the spokesperson for our for our uh, more wise demographic of the community. Surely you can't be happy with that. Oh, I, I think that if you look at uh, Bill English's proposal to increase superannuation, which was twenty years forth. And, and was phased in over some years, uh, I, I think there's very good reason for it. And I think quite clearly uh, in 10 or 15 or 20 years' time, uh, we won't be able to afford to pay the levels of superannuation at the, at the rate we pay it at if we don't do something about it. And I don't know about you, Fraser, it doesn't apply to you, but certainly I'm very close to 70 and, and there aren't many jobs I couldn't do, especially now they're giving me a couple of new knees. Uh, and so I think that, that our working life is getting longer, and I think if we're a 40-year-old and have got time to plan for that, then I think that's, uh, it's a very acceptable and sensible thing to do, because frankly, if we don't, we're going to be in a little bit of bother. Um, we will move on from that. We are here with uh, MP for Rangitiki, Ian McKelvey, on the catch-up. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of the catch-up series, you can head to the website, npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your online listening. Um, I noticed on your uh, Facebook page, Ian, uh, a few days ago, you were uh, advocating quite strongly for the end to MIQ. Uh, you must have been very pleased with the Prime Minister's uh, press conference on Thursday. Well, I think I think that that probably we preempted the Prime Minister's press conference because it was ob- obvious that that needed to happen, and and the reason it needs to happen is that we've clearly I wouldn't say we've lost control because I think at the end of the day we always had to manage our way out of this uh, lockdown mindset, and and uh, I think it's um, well it's about time and it's exciting that that. 
now those poor people locked in Australia and I get contacted by a lot of them in my position as, as spokesperson for seniors actually because they're losing their superannuation and all sorts of things simply because the government won't let them back into the country. And so that's all changed. So I think it's, it's very good news and hopefully we'll start to... Um, and I don't think we'll ever get back to what we saw as normal three years ago. Uh, and it won't be a bad thing if we don't in some ways, but we certainly need to get back to where our economy is functioning and our people could come and go a little more freely as they wish. Are you happy with the sort of the five-phase approach to this, uh, or were you advocating for just sort of swinging the doors open and, and letting it happen? Oh, no, I think we always knew there would have to be some management of the process, and, and clearly there are some people that are at risk, and, and obviously this government thinks that unvaccinated people are a bigger risk than vaccinated people, and they could well be right. So there's issues like that that probably need to be managed, and certainly the high-risk areas of, of the world uh, need to be managed in a, in a manner that, that we can control going forward. And, and I think that that's highly likely that the high-risk areas are where, if we do get new mutations, that's where they'll come from. And there was a very interesting interview a couple of mornings ago on Campbell uh, interviewing the South African doctor that found Omicron. And, and uh, I thought it was really interesting listening to her. And so you learn a lot if you listen to those people that actually discover these things and know what they're talking about. Um, is, can you see any uh, situation where you would advocate for closing the borders again? I mean, the, the example that I keep giving, the, the thing that worries me the most about opening the borders and letting people move more freely is our health system, which is not robust at the best of times. If that gets overwhelmed, should we then consider stopping people coming across the border and contain what we have and deal with what we have? Yeah, I, th- I think that, that that gets back to the to the issue that I think we talked about a few weeks ago with respect to alternative facilities. And, and there's no doubt that we're going to get more and they're going to become more common because the world's population is just of the nature that that they will. And I think it's necessary for us to build some resilience to that. So if we, we should really be putting in place alternative ways of managing our border, and that includes um, isolation areas and things like that that can be much better managed than hotel rooms. And so I think, I think that, yes, there could be some reason to do that in the future. You'd hope there wasn't, and you'd hope that um, we would have put some uh, facilities in place that would enable us to manage that much better than we have in the past. I thought it was quite interesting the Prime Minister announced that uh, you know the, the, the Defence Force are moving out of some of the hotels. Uh, some of the hotels are going to be returned to their uh, usual use in order to cater to tourists. Um, but there are going to be some hotels that are retained as MIQ for, I think, unvaccinated travellers. Um, and uh, they are going to form part of the National Quarantine Service. But she only really alluded to that, but she said there'll be more news to come on that. But do you think this is a, 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 a nod to the fact that we are going to see some purpose-built facilities down the line? Oh, I, think it's, I think it's inevitable we will see some purpose-built facilities. And whether, whether some of them are current facilities that can be adapted, I don't know. Uh, that is possible, but I do think that, that we need to do that. And I think the Defence Forces will be just so excited to be getting let out of there. It's amazing. They've been very disgruntled. Well, they haven't been because they're clearly public servants and they, they're very good at it. But, but I know that individual members of the Defence Forces have been very frustrated with the fact they're not doing what they went to the, to the uh, Army or the Air Force or the Navy to do. 
Do you think there'll be a need to address the the visa system and the immigration system, or do you see uh, vaccination as just being part of the requirements to come in? I know if you have to go when you go to some countries, you take the appropriate medication to protect yourself from what's prevalent there. Uh, will 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 a, a COVID vaccination just become part and parcel of a, of a visa process? Um, I think I, I don't really know the answer to that because I think it depends what happens with COVID. And if you look at the flu vaccines that, that some of us have had on an annual basis, um, you know, there's some a level of protection in them, there's a level of protection in COVID vaccines. So, so it may do, but I'm not so sure it will because I think it may well be a bit like um, some of the other uh, epidemic type um, diseases we've had, such as polio and things like that, where effectively you get to a point where um, you look after yourself because you know what's best for you. So, so I'm not sure that'll happen, no. Fair enough. Uh, we are here with MP for Rangitiki, Ian McKelvey, on the catch-up. Uh, turning to uh, something I, I caught a headline, um, there is a group of equestrians fighting against inequality. Uh, they're going to be riding to Parliament on March the 9th, and you're going to be meeting them. Uh, yes, so, so that's a group that was formed locally originally, uh, and and I, interestingly, the, uh, similar groups have formed in Auckland in the past. And when I first went to Parliament some 10 years ago, uh, I met with groups in Auckland, who, and I guess that's because I'm um, of an equestrian ilk, I suppose. Um, uh, so it's an interest I've got. I got to meet with them there. And one of the issues they've got, and I think it's an interesting one, and this one eventually uh, came out of the Saddle Road, actually, the new, the new um, road, uh, and that they wanted horses to have access to the walking tracks. And so that's a, that's simply how it started. And Auckland was very much the same, where they wanted horses to have access to uh, parks and walking tracks and things like that. And, of course, they've got to be a little bit careful how they do that because, you know, 50 years ago, most people in New Zealand knew what a horse did and how they behaved. Nowadays, that people don't because we've just decided he's evolved. And so, so it's, yes, it's a very interesting topic and one that I think has got some merit, but it's got to be managed. Yeah, because I mean, from what I read in the article, they're expressing a concern, a fairly justifiable one that, you know, cyclists get all this extra attention in order to give them uh, safety and a sort of equality of road use, but they don't. Um, by the same token, um, bicycles don't generally get spooked by traffic and, and potentially cause a hazard or leave evidence of their existence behind. That's right. And I've been kicked and bitten by the odd bike, but <laughs> um, you're quite right. And so that's what I say. It's a very different issue. And as I also said, society's evolved. And so we've got to find ways of managing this carefully, because I do think that horses have got a, you know, they're part of New Zealand's heritage and part, well, part of the world's heritage, but part of New Zealand. And I think have a very important role to play in the future. But we've just got to find a way of ensuring that. And the one thing you don't want to do is become elitist. And so if you don't have facilities where everyone can participate, then only people who can afford to participate participate, and that becomes that's not what we want to achieve as a country at all. As I suppose as a, a spokesperson uh, for racing as well, um, a former, I think, uh, but um, you'll, you'll be wanting to protect the, the input that horses have into our economy as well, and so uh, arguing with these 6,000 equestrians uh, might not be a good starting place. Oh, and the interesting thing about breeding horses, of course, is that we've gone from nearly 7,000 thoroughbred foals a year to 2,800 thoroughbred foals a year in New Zealand. And, and whilst that's the racing industry that primarily benefits from those thoroughbred foals, 
every other sporting sector virtually uses a, a thoroughbred or a Porsche or a percentage of thoroughbred in, in the horses they use. And so once we stop breeding the horses, then we, <laughs> we get quite a challenge. So, so it's essential that we um, have a strong, healthy breeding industry and, and racing provides the... Um, I guess the impetus for that to happen. So when these people come to see you uh, on the 9th of March, uh, riding into town, um, what, what what are you going to be telling them? I mean, they, they must have some fairly specific requests. Is is there anything that can be, is there any low-hanging fruit there that would make a difference to them? I think that the, the, they're presenting a petition which will go through the select committee and hopefully that select committee will then represent recommend to Parliament that that, um, that the Minister engage with Land Transport New Zealand or whoever the, the body is uh, at the time in charge and, and actually create an environment, just as they have with cycl- the cyclist advocacy body, have, where they end up getting some benefits from that. And if you looked at the track that goes down the um, Cavity Expressway, for example, there are vast grass areas on the side of it. There's no reason why a few horses couldn't go up and down that track well, and they're probably able to, for all I know, but it, it, I mean, that's the sort of thing they want, and I think that the NCTA could easily cater for that without uh, any great cost. Very good. Um, I noticed uh, Christopher Luxon is going to allow MPs to vote with their conscience uh, on a very polarising bill. This is the conversion therapy ban uh, bill. Um, Judith uh, and the leadership, previous leadership of the National Party had, had sort of forced you all to uh, oppose the bill, um, the messaging for which seemed to get lost in the fact that people were just surprised that anyone would support conversion therapy. Um, what's your thoughts on this, uh, and, and would you be willing to tell us how you're going to vote on the matter? Oh, certainly, certainly, I'm going to vote. I think that... Um, I think that it's, it signals from our leader a slightly different attitude to MPs' um, views on things. And, of course, I think I support the fact that MPs should, when they wish, be able to oppose something they don't agree with. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a bonus for us. I think that's a great start. Uh, from my own perspective, um, I'm not going to vote against the bill. The bill's not perfect, but I certainly don't support uh, conversion therapy, and I certainly support the people that are affected by it. So I think that the bill, from that point of view, sets out to do something very worthwhile. Uh, the fact that the government's rushed it like they have so much other legislation means it's not perfect. Uh, so, and, and, and was that the reason that, that, that the National Party, when this came round last time, opposed it because it was rushed or because you felt that there was some small problems with it? We had a view collectively that there were some challenges with this bill and on that basis we wouldn't support it to select committee. It's now come back, uh, reports back next Tuesday I think, and, and uh, on the basis of that uh, um, they haven't fixed the challenges but at the end of the day, uh, I think you've got to go with the majority. And if the majority are going to benefit from something, then I think that's where you go. And that's what happens. It's a very small number of people, of course, that are affected by this when you look at New Zealand's population. But nonetheless, the majority of those affected by it 
will benefit from this bill. Mm. Uh, we are here with MP Ian McKelvey, uh, MP for Rangitiki, on the catch-up. Um, looking to the housing crisis, Ian, um, things are not getting better for your average Kiwi at the moment, whether they be a renter uh, or on the property ladder in some way, shape or form. Uh, I note that uh, Associate Housing Minister Poto Williams has said nothing is off the table in terms of finding ways for people uh, finding ways to help people struggling with the cost of accommodation, including things like rent controls. Um, what are your feelings on this? I, I, it would strike me that National and Labour would have very different opinions on how to deal with this issue. Well, I heard her talk on the radio yesterday morning about that, and, and or actually on TV, I think she was, and, and I completely agree we would have very different views on it. And I think that the, the problem we've got in housing now has been absolutely accentuated by the activities of the government in the last four years. And almost everything they've done has forced rents up, forced the cost of housing up, and forced the, um, uh, the average person to have a great deal of difficulty either owning a house or even finding one to rent. And so I think that a lot of the policy the government's instituted so far has caused gross problems, and I think a rent freeze would create even greater problems. In, in what? How, how? Well, you've only got to look at the controls they put on, uh, interest rate controls they put on. The, the, and I'm not opposed at all to upgrading rental properties, but there's better ways to do it than arbitrary legislating for it where everyone's got to have a heat pump. Now, the climate in Southland's grossly different than the climate in Northland is, and so why you'd have the same rule right across the country on the same standard, I'd never know. And so all those costs, all they did was contributed to higher rents. They didn't actually contribute to anything else but much higher rents. And, and as you get higher rents, you force the property price up. And so everything they've done basically has created a rental situation that's not favourable for tenants and a, and a, and a property-based situation that's not favourable for house owners. So if, if National wins the next election, what would you like to see them do in terms of either legislation reversal or new legislation that will get this under control? Oh, I, think, I think, first of all, some of the tax constraints they put around landlords would have to go. Uh, that's, just, that's just not achieving anything. Any other business you're in in New Zealand, you can claim legitimately uh, expenses. You can't if you're a landlord. That's ridiculous. Uh, so that will go. Uh, I think the other things that, that are obvious to me is that the government is not necessarily the best provider of houses. In fact, they've pulled more houses down in four years than they've built. So that's, that says something very telling. And, and I think we well, it t- t- tells the story that the, the houses that were pulled down were not fit for purpose. That may well do. But um, they're, they're, yes, you're quite right, Fraser. But the fact they pulled more down than they put up is very telling. Uh, it doesn't take long to knock a house down. Oh, <laughs> it, it actually appears to, because I've, I've, I've witnessed it in Palmerston North myself. Houses taking forever to disappear. <laughs> yes, they use a decent demolition firm. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, now, but you, all these things that you're suggesting that happen um, when, if, when, and if national come in, those won't reduce rents. They'll just make it harder for landlords to justify increasing them. But that's not stopped people wanting to make more money in the past. Uh, are, is there any way that you could bring all that in and strongly encourage landlords to reduce their rents back to a manageable, manageable level for people that are struggling? No, I think, I think that's a bit like thinking we'll reduce wages. 
I think that I think what we've got to do, and it's a very strong uh, plank of Christopher Luxon's, is we've got to build a, a community, a society, and an economy that enables people to earn enough money to get on with life in a much better form than they can now. We've got to improve our education systems because our education is grossly letting our young ones down, and in fact, even our middle-aged people now are suffering from our education system, which is performing and there's evidence of this, international evidence of it, it's one of the worst performing education systems in the Western world. And that's an indictment on the way we do things in New Zealand. So we've got to fix these things, and that will solve the problem of, of cost and, and uh, higher rents and all those sort of things. It will also enable people to get into houses if they can earn a bit more. Well, well the, the, the point is that people who are earning decent salaries that, you know, five years ago would have been perfectly livable and able to get on the property ladder are now nowhere near that opportunity. Um, So a good job is not enough at the moment, is it? No, but, you know, by moving the minimum wage by $2, you effectively move everyone's wage by the same percentage. Uh, Unless you happen to work in the not-for-profit sector, Ian. (laughs) Oh, well, that's a different story. (laughs) That's a different story. (laughs) Not-for-profit, that's well put. Um, And and I think that that's another issue because you've touched on an issue now that also uh, every part of the not-for-profit sector is struggling under these massive increases in costs we're facing as a result of inflation and all these other things. So we've got to find ways of solving those problems as well because they're an absolute critical part of our community. Well, uh, Christopher Luxon was saying that the the battle uh, against poverty is is going to be one of the the big ones that National will champion. Um, Not only is he hoping, I'm sure, that that will resonate with a lot of Kiwis, but that's a bit of a dig at the Prime Minister and her battle uh, that she waged uh, against child poverty, wasn't it? Well, I don't think it's a dig at it. I think it's just a genuine position that Christopher Luxon takes. And and, um, the fact that they failed to deal with this issue other than pushing up um, benefits and, and, and the minimum wage. And I've got no problem with the benefits or the minimum wage going up, but you've got to deal with all the other issues that are facing the economy that are, that are precluding them from actually having an opportunity. Indeed, uh, we are pretty much out of time. Uh, Ian McKelvey, MP for Rangitiki, thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. Pleasure, Fraser. Thank you. There we go. Ian McKelvey joining us on the catch-up this morning. uh, So uh, looking to the catch-up for next week, on Monday we are going to be speaking to the new CEO of CEDA, the Central Economic Development Agency. Make sure you join us for that. Uh, On Tuesday, hopefully, we'll be speaking to Nicola Patrick from Horizons Regional Council. Uh, Our regular Wednesday media slot, we'll be speaking to Matthew Dallas from the Manawatu Standard. Uh, Hopefully catching up with uh, Helen Warboys on Thursday and uh, MP for Palmerston North, Tangi Utakeri, uh, will hopefully be joining us on Friday as well. That is it for the catch-up this morning. Make sure you join us on Monday at half past eight for another edition. Enjoy your long weekend. Bye for now. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.